Welcome to this Zonal Marking podcast brought to you by The Athletic. As a huge fan of arbitrary markers of time, today's pod is a nod to the popular end of the decade content that you all know and love so much. This episode is about the most famous footballing result of the decade. You never forget where you were when you saw Germany beat Brazil 7-1 in a World Cup semi-final in Brazil. I'm Ali Maxwell and I watched it in a booth at the Green Turtle Sports Bar and Grill in Washington, D.C. Jack Lang, who writes for The Athletic, joins us for this podcast. Jack, where did you watch this one? Hi, Ali. Despite being in Brazil for the World Cup, I somehow managed to miss this one live. Uh, So I watched it in the living room of my wife's family home with varying degrees of heartbreak uh, occurring all around me. And able, hopefully, to avoid any burning buses or cars or other vehicles after the event. Jack, you kind of mentioned it there, you've touched on it, the reason we've got you in. For The Athletic, you write about Brazil, South America, features, weird stories and some other stuff, according to your Twitter bio. That sounds like a tough gig. It is. I mean, it's a very loose brief, as I'm sure you're hinting out there. But yeah, it's a pretty pretty nice set of tasks. Can't really complain. Plenty of stories. This the first time you've appeared on this podcast, probably not the last, given the richness of the footballing tapestry that you cover in South America. I still remember the glory days of your South America-based football blog from back in the day, the wonderfully named Snap Kaka Pop. Uh, like all proper grown-up football writers and broadcasters, though. You dropped the blog name, you kept evolving, uh, and I think that's important rather than just living off the name of a blog that you set up in the early 2010s, which surely is just living in the past. Anyway, also in the studio is at zonal underscore marking. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ali. Thanks for that introduction. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Where did you watch Brazil 1, Germany 7? Uh, I was just at home, actually. I was in London, I think, doing a, doing an article about it for The Guardian from London. So, uh, yeah, not as uh, in situ as Jack was, but, uh, yeah, incredible game. I mean, I remember when watching it was kind of thinking this is, you know, the most remarkable World Cup game I've seen. And, yeah, five years on, it still feels quite an incredible result. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get stuck into to the match, to the meat and drink, Jack, I'd like you to... Give us some background, some context on this Brazil side, the hosts of the World Cup, of course. Who was in charge? Who was managing them? Luis Felipe Scolari, who, of course, won the World Cup with Brazil in 2002. He'd been brought back in after a brief experiment with a a manager called Mano Menezes, who, at the time, after the 2010 World Cup, he was really tasked with renovating a side that had grown very stagnant. And he, he brought in players like Neymar, uh, others who didn't do so well, like uh, Ganso and Alexandre Pato. But his uh, the results tailed off, really, under him. And so Brazil turned turned to their past in the form of Scolari. Scolari is what Brazilians call a copeiro, which is a, a cup expert. And that really was the buzzword around the time he was brought back. This was someone who... Uh, knew how to arrange teams for a competition, not just tactically, and in fact, not even particularly tactically, but in terms of team spirit, in terms of uh, forming a group. His uh, 2002 side, for example, uh, people called it the uh, Familia Scolari, the Scolari family. And and in the run-up to the 2014 World Cup, really that sense of team building, squad building, did come to the fore. So he was only in charge for two years. But 2013, he won the Confederations Cup. Obviously, we don't regard that as a massive competition at all. And in Brazil, then you know they're not 
comparing that to a World Cup by any means, but it was seen as a, a marker. Well, it's all they had to go off, right? Because they wouldn't have had to qualify for this. Exactly right. So they hadn't played competitive football for a while. And they didn't just win the Confederations Cup. They were really impressive. They beat Spain 3-0, and that was seen by many as a landmark uh, result for them. So the task really in the year ahead of the World Cup was for Scolari to to maintain the momentum, to kind of to keep the wheels rolling, essentially. Didn't really manage to do that, as I'm sure we'll go into, but the I think the, the prevailing wins were fairly positive. And the expectations were high coming from those above Scolari. Jose Maria Marin, the head of the Football Federation of Brazil, said pre-tournament that only a catastrophe will present us from winning. If we lose, we're all going to hell. So, Michael... In terms of the squad Scolari had to try to avoid that fate, talk me through it. Uh, Plenty expected of them, but where did their squad rank amongst those rivals of theirs? Well, in Brazilian terms, I don't think it was particularly strong. I mean, they were hugely dependent on Neymar, who I think for the previous couple of years had generally played from the left, and there was a kind of last-minute decision to switch him and Oscar. So Oscar really played from the left in the tournament and, and Neymar's the number 10. But you kind of just expect Brazil to have strength and depth in terms of attackers. But I mean, even up front, there was Fred who, you know, much maligned, not the most spectacular forward, did a job for the side. But uh, I mean, compared to obviously the 2002 side when there was, you know, three great forwards, even the 2006 side, which came up short but had so much uh, strength and depth, there wasn't that much going on. And even, you know, look at the squad now, they seem to have recovered in terms of, you know, having a, a decent array of attacking options. But I must say, obviously this ended in disaster. I don't think we're giving away the game there. But I thought Scolari actually did a decent job in preparing the side for this tournament. I mean, I remember year 18 months out, there was a real sense of this is going to be a complete disaster. I think I'm right in saying that Brazil started the tournament as the bookies' favourites. OK, you know, they're the hosts. The, they always are kind of ranked slightly higher than you'd expect. But I feel a little bit sorry for Scolari because I think in terms of getting the side in shape for this tournament, he did a decent job. It's also worth saying, Michael's touched on the quality within the squad. Just in terms of form, I mean, a World Cup is won in a very short period of time. It's about being in form in that moment. And even within the the limited bounds of the talent at his disposal, it's worth noting that a number of players had really gone off the boil in the year before the World Cup. So uh, Fred, who Michael mentioned, had completely tailed off in his form. Only Joe to back up and even Joe, who had been scoring in Brazil, he suffered a bad bit of form. Paulinho, who was a key player, had, uh, you know, he'd moved to Tottenham and completely gone off the rails. Even Oscar, who developed into a massively important player in Scolari's system. He was looking tired. He'd played 100 games plus between the start of January and by the time the World Cup rolled around. So there was already a sense that, okay, well, we've got the the structure of the side we want, but perhaps each individual piece wasn't quite at the level it should have been. And run me through, Jack, the progress through the group stage and the first two knockout rounds. Certainly in the group stages, They weren't on top form, I think it's fair to say. Looking back, I think I recall it was the Netherlands and Colombia that were really catching the eye. You talk about the structure and potentially uh, individual performances. Was there a dependence on Neymar at this stage for Brazil? I think Michael can discuss the tactics more in a second. I think there there was certainly a, a tactical dependence on him, but I think perhaps just as significantly there was, there was a leadership dependence on him even though he was a young player 
he's one of the few, I think, in that Brazil squad. It, it's easy to look at this in hindsight and and read too much into everything, but there was a very uh, nervy, overwrought atmosphere around the side throughout the whole tournament, which partic- particularly came to a head in the game against Chile, which went to penalties, and you've got you've got Thiago Silva uh, basically refusing to take a penalty kick because he's in a state of mental panic. Uh, Julio Cesar, the goalkeeper, basically spent the whole tournament in tears. And so from that point of view, you have Neymar, who is not only the most skilled player in the squad, he's also someone who thrives on that pressure. You know, he, no matter what you think of Neymar, and I think multiple views are... (laughs) understandable with him but he is someone who has never shied away from those big moments so when he goes off injured against Colombia uh, it turns into a massive psychodrama you've got pictures of Neymar in his hospital bed and uh, he, he ends up watching the match 400 miles away in his kind of beachside house but even in the run-up to the game there's all this focus on him of course culminating in the the pre-match site of David Luiz lifting up the Neymar jersey. It's like a, a funeral atmosphere before this game. All of which I think creates... Uh, well, you look at the players during the national anthem and certain of them, are, I think, are overly enthusiastic. I mean, David Luiz... Per, my personal view is that uh, an abundance of uh, adrenaline probably isn't always a great thing when you go into this match. Brazil think they thrive off it, but I think that's debatable. And then you've got someone, uh, Neymar's replacement in this game was Bernard, who just looks like a a 12-year-old boy completely out of his depth, poor thing. I feel really sorry for him. And it's taken his career four or five years to really get back anywhere near the same level. So certainly Neymar's print really is all over this match, even though he didn't even play in it. And Michael, looking at their opposition, Germany... What was the feeling in the wider footballing public about this matchup for Brazil? Who was favourites going into this one? How had Germany been playing prior to this game? Well, Germany hadn't really impressed. I mean, they'd, they'd struggled slightly in the group stages. They had a couple of problems, particularly in the fullback positions. They were first started with Lam in midfield and a couple of centre backs out wide, and they're quite a pedestrian, really. They really struggled in the second round game against Algeria, who kept on playing balls in behind, and that was the game where Manuel Neuer was famously playing even more so than usual as a sweeper rather than a goalkeeper. They did okay in the in the quarter final against France, a pretty flat one nil win, to be honest, not a very memorable game. Um I guess the interesting thing is you know, it's easy to look back and say, OK, this Brazil side had emotional problems and tactical problems. And Germany went on to win the World Cup, of course. It's easy to say, oh, OK, you know, that was always going to happen. But you look at the bookmakers' odds for this. They started neck and neck, I think 2.7 on the exchanges. This was really a 50-50 game. So for one of them to run out 7-1 winners, you know, it was just extraordinary. The tactical battle. Germany first. Uh, you've, you've touched on how they were playing in terms of performance. How were they playing in terms of tactics? You've got Closer up front. Uh, Müller, is he in his most famous round-deuter role? Ozil off the left. Uh, you talked about the full-backs. Hervedes was playing left-back. What was their setup? What was their tactical objective, would you say, this side? Well, I think whether by design or whether it's just how it happened on the night, almost everything went down the right. You can boil the the tactical battle down to one area of the field, and that was Brazil's left-back zone. And uh, people seem to remember this game as David Luiz, you know, having a bit of a meltdown and losing his head. But I think that was kind of after the the goals, really. It was kind of at 5-0 down where he really started going a bit crazy. When it was 0-0 and 1-0 and 2-0, it was really Marcelo who was pushing so high up the pitch. 
and just was continually getting bypassed. And I think the first three goals, in different ways, sometimes it's, you know, they win a set piece from that zone and then score from the set piece. Sometimes it's an open play, but Marcelo's just out of position again and again. And you've almost got German players almost competing to, to play on that side. I mean, Ozil was on the on the left, on the opposite flank, and is just drifting across to the right. Lahm was overlapping continually. Kadir is pushing forward from midfield, and that's without Muller, who, as we know, is, you know, the best player around at finding space. So it was, you know... It's, it was an easy game to write about tactically because everything was in that zone of the pitch. And Neymar's replacement, Bernard, obviously off the left-hand side as well, struggling to cope. The first goal, look, it's very unathletic of me, but I've not crunched the numbers on this. But for me, World Cup semi-finals, one of the things that I think of tight games and goals from set pieces being key. I think of Umtiti in 2018 for France against Belgium, Puyol for Spain against Germany four years before this game in 2010. So let's make sure as a team that we're all in sync. We've remembered what the analysts have told us about various set play routines. Let's make sure that we defend the first few resolutely. Jack, it's not what happens on 11 minutes, is it? Uh, a, a free... I was going to say a free header, but it's not. It's a side-footed volley from Thomas Muller after 11 minutes. Yes, exactly. Not ideal. And I think that hints at the kind of defensive uh, uncertainty, really, that comes from another key absence from Brazil's side. Obviously, Neymar is is critical, but also Thiago Silva, who picked up uh, a second booking against Colombia, sat this one out. And people malign, especially David Luiz, he and Thiago Silva together were, in the run-up to this tournament, a fantastic force for Brazil. They, I think they played 26 times together for Brazil before this game. Uh, hadn't lost a single one of them, and I think they'd won 21. They really brought the best out of each other. David Luiz obviously has some very eccentric uh, tendencies. Thiago Silva, I think, is someone who compensates for those. Once you've brought Dante into the side, I think at the time he was a decent player. He's a very slow player. I think that contributed to the to the Marcelo uh, struggles on his side because you've got Dante there, a guy who struggles to cover that, and really Germany dug into that. But also at set pieces, Thiago Silva, in, a, in an attacking sense, was a big uh, weapon for Brazil. But also defensively, I mean, he's the he's the organizer. He's, he was often there, you know, in the near post area. He's the kind of guy that grabs people by the the scruff of their necks and puts them in position. David Luiz, I think, is in a way a leader, but he's a, a more frantic leader, a more heart-on-the-sleeve leader. And I think in the first couple of goals, especially before David Luiz starts to go really walk about, I think even then Brazil were missing someone with a, with a cool head in that area. When you watch that goal back, there's six Brazilian defenders all going to the near post with, I think, three German players. Müller peels off to the back post, and it is Luiz who seems to realise what's happening before anyone else and it almost doesn't help him because watching the slow-mo replay, it's him who's suddenly trying to, to get to Müller, realising the issue at hand and in a sense making it clear that he might be at fault for a, for a, an issue with the marking. There's no special blocks that we see these days, basketball-style picks being set by attacking players. It's just a delivery to the back post and Muller's there to score. Michael, the second goal comes not long after this. It's Miroslav Klose, and it's the first record that gets broken uh, on a day where a few others tumbled. 
Yeah, adding insult to injury, I guess. But this goal took him ahead of Ronaldo in the uh, all-time World Cup goal-scoring stakes. I mean, Ronaldo is just a very Brazilian forward and Closer is a very German forward. And I think, <laughs> I remember almost quite a lot of people saying, well, Closer doesn't deserve the record. It's not, not the kind of record you deserve or not. It's the kind of record you either have or you don't. <laughs> but why would, pe- why would people say that? Well, because I guess Closer was not a spectacular player. He, he didn't really have a great career at club level. He was a peculiar player who just seemed to turn up again and again whenever a World Cup got around. But he was very effective on the on the highest stage. Um, this goal, again, really you can attribute to Marcelo for two reasons. First, he gets caught too high up the pitch and Brazil attacking behind and win a throw. And then from the subsequent throw, he gets caught too deep and plays on both uh, Muller and Closer, who combine for Closer's goal. So, yeah, again, it was a, a goal from that side. It's the first of a couple of goals in this game that don't look like goals that you see in a match at this level and of this importance. A few fairly straightforward passes within the box, a, a rebound, a bit of goalkeeping that doesn't cover. Julio Cesar does not cover himself in glory, not for the last time. Uh, there's no way of, of dressing this up, is there, Jack? Closer's goal is the first of a flurry of goals. Four, in fact, in six minutes and approximately 40 seconds that take the score from 1-0 to 5-0. Talk me through this developing storyline from a Brazilian point of view, how it was being covered by the TV cameras, how the Brazilian fans and public and staff and players were reacting to this. Well, there's just a growing sense of horror, really, because at 1-0 down, even 2-0 down, Brazil are, are in the match just about clinging by their fingernails but there's this period that the match is just whisked out of their hands really Scolari called it after the game and the Brazilian word is apagon a a blackout and he suggested that there was nothing he could have done during this period to to kind of get his players minds back in the game and looking at it again I like Michael I do feel a little pang of sympathy for Scolari here because there is something about each of these goals which is just so avoidable. I mean, the ones that stand out to me, the 4-0 goal, and it's just Fernandinho having a nightmare, really. This was important because, tactically speaking, I mean, he'd come into the side during the tournament for Paulinho, and often Luis Gustavo, who is the other central midfielder, his role was to drop between the centre-backs. And this often left left Brazil with just a, a gaping hole in midfield with one man trying to fill it and... Midway through the tournament, Tostão, the old Brazil striker, who was, he's turned into a really good columnist, one of the the go-to columnists in the Brazilian media. He likened Fernandinho in the in the Colombia game to Robinson Crusoe, just marooned in midfield, absolutely wide open spaces around him. And we really see this in this match. Brazil are just cut apart by these German triangles, and often. There aren't. They're not. They're not even close to making challenges. It's not like they're losing fifty-fifties uh, during this period. It seems like Brazil barely touched the ball. It's bizarre. And then, of course, you've got the five-nil goal, and this is where this is where David Luiz has lost it. You watch the replays, and not only is he not in the penalty area or near the ball, he's not even in the shot. And then it cuts to another camera angle, basically showing half of the pitch and he's still not in it. And he's just gone rampaging upfield uh, in that very David Louis, Louis way, trying to to solve the issues himself. 
And it, it's just a snowball effect, really. One thing leads to the other. And all of that emotional uh, baggage that has built up over the tournament, built up over many, many years as well, as I'm sure we'll come to in a minute. You, you've got decades of history. And there's something about the way that Brazil plays and lives football that all of this is just feels very present. So even as it's happening, history, you feel the weight of it. And I'd be surprised if the players didn't feel that as well in some respect. And just they just couldn't find a way to restore equilibrium, really. Michael, Germany, not the ideal opposition when you're playing like this. Uh, who was standing out during this crazy six and a half minutes of play? Uh, a period in which some of the goals looked almost as if they were trying not to score. It was like when you play your kid cousin on FIFA and he's just so bad that you're trying not to score but you don't really know how because there's only one way they know how to play. Yeah, they had a couple of other chances as well. Um, there was one shot I think Tony Cruz hit and hit his own man and there was a couple of kind of slightly comedy moments as if, like you say, Germany weren't really trying to rack up the scoreline. And in you know, it seems like they actually weren't. It seems like at half time they had a meeting and agreed, you know, we're really embarrassing Brazil here. And I think a lot of the players, almost out of deference to the fact that they enjoyed their time in Brazil, they respected Brazil, they, they liked the hospitality, I think realised what was happening. And there seemed to be a meeting amongst certainly the 11 who started the game to say, hang on, let's just keep it at 5-0. We don't really need to rack up a big scoreline here. Uh, the problem was, of course, that uh, Yogi Love turned to one of his substitutes. He clearly wasn't in that particular huddle in the dressing room. Uh, Andre Scherler didn't get the memo. Yeah, pretty much. And he comes in. It's almost like he's just attacking on his own. You know, Germany just keeping four and five behind the ball. And Scherler's attacking from the left wing and clearly thinks, hang on, I can play my way into the side here um, for the World Cup final, of course. Doesn't in the end, but scores two goals as a substitute here. Um, nice to see a few come down Brazil's right-hand side for a change. <laughs> yeah, Mike on, change. I think, playing right back. Um, but that did at least seal his role as you know Germany's best super sub. And then he's the guy who comes on in the final and sets up the goal for another sub in uh, Mario Götze. So he probably did do him good there. But yeah, didn't break into the first 11 as I think he was trying to do. Talking of unusual goals, Schürrle's second, I think, even again watching back, you think... He's, he's sort of off balance, it's on the bounce, left-footed, half-volley. Mostly these go 10 metres over the bar, but it clips the underside of Julio Cesar's uh, goal and, and in. Just another moment where you wonder what's going on. Just a, a moment of, of craziness, really. And Jack, it was a good day to be a cameraman that prefers shooting B-roll, shooting crowd shots to shooting the actual match itself because there are some iconic images from the stands. Yeah, this was really a day to fill up the coffers of your, your photo bank of bleak shots, wasn't it? You, you've got the guy kind of chewing on his flag, tearing it to pieces with his teeth. You've got crying kids. You've got smeared face paint. You've got smeared face paint. All of the... All of these images just showing people in the crowd growing uh, deeper and people in the crowd getting deeper into despair. And actually that level of doom and gloom was replicated uh, in my domestic scene because you've got one of the things about watching football on TV in Brazil is that often the goals will be spoiled because someone will let off fireworks outside. And maybe they've got a quicker TV connection or watching on a different channel. That's very often happens. 10 seconds before the goal is scored, you'll hear this popping sound. And all of these Brazilians obviously got their, their fireworks in and I was in this uh, my wife's house and Oscar scores the consolation goal and 
obviously a few of the names just thought, well, this is, this is as good as it's going to get. And I think that was probably one of the bleakest sights or sounds I've experienced in football is fireworks being let off at the, the one goal in the 7-1. But it, and even the one of the commentators known for the very South American-esque goal just gives it goal. Yeah, that's Galvan Bueno. If you dug out his commentary, the audio from it, it's basically the sound of someone's soul exiting his body over 90 minutes. And he was just a husk by that stage. <laughs> he barely stretched it to one oh. Oscar does get the goal. Brazil actually have about 16 shots in the second half. Uh, and yet the the big chance at 7-0 falls to Germany. O- Ozil uh, slides a one-on-one wide of the post just before Oscar's non-consolation goal. Uh, Jack... The fallout now for, for a nation that had made a pretty big deal of the 1950 World Cup final defeat in Brazil, just 2-1 that day, the Maracanazo. How is this received immediately and, and in the following days? Well, naturally, there is a huge outpouring of disappointment, but blame as well. There's there's real uh, sense of sense of anger there. A lot of the headlines, you know, they're talking not about disappointment, but about shame, about uh, Brazil's reputation being tarnished. And in the press, there is a lot of harking back to 1950. A couple of papers suggesting, OK, well, the 1950 team, all is forgiven. This, this is a real embarrassment. Um, whether or not it's on the same scale, I think obviously in strict footballing terms, this was more embarrassing. This was... Uh, a humbling, a 2-1 defeat against Uruguay can happen. A 7-1 is, is different magnitude, but I think they are still comparable in terms of uh, in terms of the impact because 1950 wasn't just about the defeat, it was about the hubris that surrounded it. So Brazil were, were almost celebrating before they'd won on that occasion. They were, uh, hand, they'd already made medals for all the players. The, the headline in one of the newspapers on the day of the game was, these are your world champions. There's a real, uh, fairly jarring, now we look at it in light of what happened, uh, misplaced belief there. So that obviously made the, the fallout all the more painful back then. And it was really also uh, a kind of uh, a slicing down of Brazil's self-belief back then. There was a kind of a new world optimism about Brazil and Brazil finally showing itself on the world stage back then, which I think gave it a historical heft that maybe this 2014 game didn't have because I think Brazil came into this game thinking, oh, we could win the World Cup, but it wasn't, it wasn't heaven or earth, even if the fallout was very brutal. One of the newspaper reactions to this was to, rather than give the players uh, a mark out of 10, as would be traditional, actually to assign a an adjective to every player's performance. Uh, I won't run through all of them, but for example, uh, Hulk, Shambolic, Marcelo, Aimless, Paulinho, Outclassed, Fernandinho, Wild. Michael, your skill of tactically analysing a game, uh, did, do you look back at this one and think there's not really much tactically I can say about this because it feels like it was exacerbated by a uh, an emotional or even a psychological issue that they encountered early on in this game as much as you you have pointed out Marcelo a few times seemed to have it in for him somewhat yeah I mean it's certainly true about you know I think there was an emotional failing I think a lot of people sense that even just in the national anthems and the way they reacted to the Neymar absence but yeah as I said previously 
that still has to be kind of carried out somewhere on the pitch. And it was really the kind of ideal game to analyse because, one, it all happened in, in one area of the pitch and, two, it all happened in such a short period of time. I mean, I'm not sure I watched the second half of this game back because the game was was really dead by about 35 minutes in. So in that sense, it was, uh, yeah, quite a simple game to to analyse. Struggling in all aspects. You couldn't say the same about Germany that day. And of course, Michael, Brazil then have to play a, a third place playoff game against the Netherlands a few days later, which certainly felt too soon and didn't go very well on the pitch. No, it didn't. I mean, the interesting thing here is within the first five minutes, Arjen Robin wins a penalty from Thiago Silva. And it's just so blatantly a red card and he's not shown a red card. I just wonder why that was, whether the referee sensed we don't want to embarrass Brazil further here against a Holland side who really seemed quite up for this third place playoff, which I'm not sure Brazil were. I think they just wanted to go on holiday and leave the country. Or maybe he just thought, you know, it's a third place playoff for not taking it seriously. But yeah, it was just it was just an odd incident that because maybe the referee kind of just tapped into the same sense the German side had felt at halftime of the semi-final in that it's not the done thing to embarrass Brazil here. But yeah, I mean, Holland is just more up for the game and go on to win it pretty comfortably in the end. Let's talk about the fallout now, Jack. What's the consequence of Brazil 1, Germany 7 for their manager? So Scolari was, was out within a few days. And on a personal note, he, I think, saw his reputation really take a battering, rightly so. Obviously, he remains a World Cup winner, that can never be taken away from him. But certainly I think the respect that he commands within the Brazilian football ecosystem has taken a blow since that. He was back in work very quickly. He took a job at, at Grêmio, who he has a very close relationship with. That was just a few weeks afterwards, wasn't it? it, it, it I, find, I found that really interesting. It feels like if England had lost 7-1 to Croatia in Russia and, and Southgate had pitched up at Everton maybe two weeks later. Exactly. And I, I spoke to him for a, a piece I wrote about this game a little while back. And he, he said that initially he did plan to have a little uh, sabbatical to, to digest it. But this offer, I suppose, provided him with an outlet. People in football like to, to work through their pain, as it were. Uh, it didn't actually go that well with Gremio, but he subsequently went to China, uh, won the, the Asian Champions League, came back to Brazil with Palmeiras, won the Brazilian title last year. That went some way to restoring some of the luster he lost here. But certainly there's there's none of the uh, rose-tinted nostalgia over him that there might have been after 2002. And I think now people have a, a more balanced view of him. I wouldn't say it's entirely negative, but yeah, they, they can see both sides. What of his squad of players, those involved in the game, banished any of them from national team service? I can imagine that happening after such a performance as this. Yeah, 10 of them have never played for Brazil since. Um, only six of the 23 made it to the, the subsequent World Cup squad in, in Russia. So I think that's a fairly that's fairly indicative of uh, the way that their reputations were burnt, really. Obviously, people like, like Fridge were, were never really going to carry over. It was, it was tough for him, wasn't it? Because did he come through? He's from... Mineral, he's, he's where from, the match was played. Yeah, he's from Minas Gerais. That's he counts that as his uh, home from home, really. So he he found that particularly very difficult. But I think more interesting cases aren't aren't him or you know Maicon or Julio Cesar, who are all kind of moving towards the latter stages of their career. Anyway, the interesting ones are people like um, Oscar Bernard, even. Oscar kind of hung around for the next couple of years, but his standing, I think, was definitely harmed by this tournament. And I, I don't think he was alone in that. 
I remember listening to something Tim Vickery said once um, about Brazilian players and how they basically love their hometown club. They go abroad for the you know the kind of career, but then they view that as almost their platform for playing for Brazil. And in sporting terms, Brazil was the kind of peak for them. I think it's interesting, you look at two players like Oscar and Ramirez, who were both at Chelsea at a time where they were winning Champions League, winning the Europa League, and both chose to go to China at a pretty early stage in their career. Um, And I haven't really been involved with Brazil for a long time, which I think probably speaks to the fact they thought that was it. You know, they thought that tournament in Brazil was the pinnacle of their career, or should have been the pinnacle of their career. And thereafter, kind of, it was early retirement, if you like. And quite a, an awkward one for Dante, who had to return to Bayern Munich uh, and and face in the dressing room many of his uh, many of his enemies, I suppose, on the pitch that day. Uh, Jack, a lot of blame being apportioned to a lot of players, to the manager. Was there anything more inward about Brazilian football, uh, its federation, how they were making decisions, how they'd got to this stage? Was there, was there any sort of changing of the guard at that level or, or any sort of um, wider change, I suppose? In the media, there was a, a demand for that kind of process to take place, certainly. You had a lot of prominent ex-players saying, OK, well, this is, this is a moment for reflection to, to take our time to really analyse what's gone on, not just in the short term, but in the long term. I mean, I mean this really is the culmination of a, a slow descent into into ignominy for Brazil, I think. So the feeling is, is it's not a very forward thinking federation. Would that be fair to say? I think that would be very generous. In fact, it's I mean, it's traditionally over the last decades, it's been a, a body stuffed with the kind of crepuscular, corrupt old men who have come to define football administration, uh, certainly in South America and worldwide. But, but I think in many ways, Brazil has some of the worst of the worst, really. Marin, you mentioned earlier, obviously, his predecessor, like uh, Teixeira, and the man who succeeded him, Marco Polo Del Nero, who's banned from travelling, who once <laughs> stole... Uh, he was presenting a youth team with their winner's medals from a youth tournament and shoved one into his pocket. I mean, these are really not great people in many respects and so perhaps it was too much to expect of them to really uh, turn their gaze inward and sure enough within eight days they had appointed a new man just that time period would have been an issue uh, really for me because they didn't have a friendly for a little while they could have they should have launched an inquest they should have you know talked to anyone who knew anything about Brazilian football structure to to gather opinions, to gather views, but no, it, it was business as usual, heads in the sand. And then the identity of the man they they appointed, it, it's Dunga, the coaching personification of this kind of Ludditism that runs through Brazilian football. It's something that's held it back massively. It's something that was exemplified when a, a few years before this, Pep Guardiola had vaguely uh, brainstormed the idea of he, he'd like to become Brazil manager. It was laughed completely out of town. And here you've got Dunga, a man whose previous reign with Brazil had ended terribly, a man who had spent the last four years largely unemployed. He'd worked for 10 months in the previous four years. His previous reign ended uh, with just niggling between him and the media. He's not liked in Brazil at all. Tactically, he makes Scolari look like the absolute future. And yet he's back in charge. And basically what you've got here is you've got two years when Brazil, they don't just stay still. They go backwards, really. Two terrible Copa America campaigns, just embarrassingly bad, uh, going out in the group stage in 2016. And just absolute stagnation. Once you look back at the recent sweep of Brazilian football, I think, if anything, those two years have been more detrimental to the health of the game than than the 7-1. Can we 
end on a more positive note in terms of what's happened since 2016, uh, Brazilian football moving in the right direction, certainly a manager of the national team that seems popular, which is a good step. Yes, I think that's true. He's having a few wobbles at the moment, so his standing isn't as high as it was. But certainly, in the grand scheme of things, Chiche has been a, a breath of fresh air. He's more modern. He's more thoughtful. He's uh, kind of got that same uh, fatherly side that Scolari has, but he, used, he uses it in a much more uh, intelligent way, I think. And looking beyond that as well, I mean, the federation is still fairly backward, but there have been advances in club football in Brazil. So mentioned Guardiola's interest in the Brazil job. Traditionally, uh, Brazil's been quite sniffy about foreign coaches. Uh, even in the domestic leagues, there have been some South Americans, but it's not been somewhere where historically foreign coaches have thrived. But in the last year, we've had two major success stories. One, of course, is Jorge Jesus, who took Flamengo to the Libertadores, has been a real success story in Brazil, not just because of, of that trophy, but the way he's encouraged new methods, new thinking, he's brought European ideas in. And the other is uh, Jorge Sampaoli, the Argentine manager most famous for, for his work with Chile. So I think there is, slowly but surely, uh, a kind of opening up of minds, which I think will be beneficial. And Chichi, I think, does play a role in that movement. I think it's uh, the last two, three years, I think, we have seen steps forward. And I know they didn't win the World Cup last year, as, as I think some expected them to, or, or really to compete. But even just the way they lost, I mean, I was impressed with the way that they played throughout the tournament. I thought they just looked very modern, quite European, quite dynamic. And it was probably the first time I've seen Brazil lose in a tournament and it not be treated as a complete disaster. I mean, obviously, they won it in 94, 2002. You look at 98, there was the Ronaldo thing in the final. 2006, there was a big dilemma about, you know, almost accommodating too many attackers in the same team. 2010, as, as you alluded to with Dunga, they had a bit of a meltdown in the second half against Holland in a game they really should have won, you know, based upon the first half. And it just feels like they've kind of got the house in order and, and will just kind of almost chalk it up as, as one of those things because they're a little bit unlucky in that Belgium game. I think they, they create a lot of chances and, and could have won it, really. Massively so. I mean, that has been echoed in just the, the press reaction at the time. Normally, like you say, there's, there's so much hand-wringing. It's... Every defeat is a crisis with Brazil and, and that kind of is folded into all the pressure and all the things we talked about before. But as Michael said, there was a more uh, pragmatic, I suppose, a more a more realistic take on that Belgium game. Belgium, I think, was seen in Brazil as you know a fantastic team, rightly so. And it was seen as, as a, def a defeat to a team that was more or less on the same footing, so not a tragedy for once. We've been talking about Germany beating Brazil 7-1 in a World Cup semi-final in Brazil in 2014. Michael, any question that this is the most memorable, significant result in the last decade? No, not for me. I mean, it's just completely unprecedented. I can't remember ever really seeing a 7-1, to be honest, certainly not in the latter stages of a major tournament. And I think it's up there as one of the most momentous results of all time, actually. I mean, it's easy to say that with a bit of recency bias, but I just think the... It sounds silly, but the global spread of football and the global spread of communication technology means I expect a hundred times more at least people were watching this game around the world compared to the you know the 1950 result, which was previously considered you know one of the great shocks of all time. It was just an absolutely incredible game, and you know as, as I mentioned earlier, this was a game that went off level, you know 50-50 in terms of people's expectations who would win, and it ended with well, didn't end with one side being seven goals up, but 
that was just a really incredible run of scoring. And uh, yeah, for me, the most memorable game of the decade by a long way. Well, thank you, Jack Lang, for your expertise in, in talking us through this. Thank you for being on the Zonal Marking Podcast. My pleasure. And Michael, always a pleasure to have you involved as well. Thanks, Ali. If you've enjoyed listening to Jack and Michael break down this momentous occasion and you don't subscribe to The Athletic, then you're missing out on much more good written content from these two fine men, but also many other writers from across the globe covering all sorts of football, both in England, in the UK and abroad. If you'd like to check out the site, you can sign up to The Athletic today and get 40% off if you go to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. That's 40% off The Athletic if you sign up today using the link theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. As for us, we'll be back again with a new episode, a new theme and topic next week. 